Part Four, Section Two of the Trial of Callista Blake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Trial of Callista Blake by Edgar Pangborn. Part Four, Section Two. Terence Mann stopped playing, tense with a dissonance of perplexity. A wrong time and mood for Chopin. His hands had been dull in the C-sharp minor impromptu. No music now, but an impulsive sorrow of December wind leaning against the building in the dark. Callista never cried. To Maud Welsh, that had been real unnatural. Judge Mann did not find it so. Self-pity was not evident as a quality of Callista Blake. He understood with almost amused distress that he liked the girl. That, plus old dislike for the representative of her accuser, the State. How far can you go with such a bias before the judicial lid blows off? He remembered doubtfully a talk with Joe Bass the evening before. Anything more than a flurry of wishful thinking? Increase of humanitarianism in the last century and a half? Well, social history agreed, if you read it with some detachment from the immediate terrors of the decade, and the increase could hardly be ignored or dismissed, except by someone bitterly in love with his own pessimism. Modern post-war pessimism, although a cult like any other, was persuasive, deceptively articulate, something contagious in a comprehensive the hell with it. Social history made it clear that capital punishment had dwindled in frequency from a common public entertainment to something almost rare. The states still practicing it gave evidence of official shame, or at least of a schizophrenic need to serve two contraries, to appease the recurrent vengefulness of their multitudes, but also to hide the dirty thing, tacitly apologize, soften its most visible nastiness in the hope that conscience would shut up and sleep again. Such a condition would be preliminary to change. Like tuberculosis and venereal disease, capital punishment was on the way out, but going out in the manner of things legal, with dreary and creeping slowness. Wasn't that how he had reasoned two years ago, when his name was up in the election more or less unopposed? Or had he honestly faced it at all? Hadn't he simply regarded a judgeship as mostly useful work and $18,000 a year? And hadn't he accepted, without enough examination, the doctrine that a judge is only an instrument of something greater than himself? An instrument of what something greater than himself in what way? The questions projected themselves beyond the cloud curtain of mysticism. But it seemed to judge man that unless they could receive a daylight answer, the doctrine itself was solemn nonsense. Imagining society with a capital S to be greater than the individual, no answer there, only a more opaque mysticism. The mental construction society is an achievement of the individual brain an organ that had better not be too dazzled by products of its own authorship. The issue of capital punishment had been bound to arise. 
I knew the laws. I knew that New Essex was no more free than any other state from crime and the balancing crime of punishment. From an unseeing stare at the carpet, his head jerked up as if at the entrance of another. Balancing crime of punishment. He had been thinking in specific words, talking to a half-personalized projection of the self, and the words had power to startle him. It was a commonplace to Terence Mann that punishment itself is an archaic evil in the law. As special prosecutor, as defense lawyer on a few occasions, in the relatively clean region of civil law, he had tried to favor any reorientation of thought and action that might discredit punishment as a respected motivation and replace it by efforts at healing and reclamation. As a judge, familiar with the endless parade of minor offenders, most of them with no chance of redemption, for where in the modern state was there a sufficient will to redeem even the young, or the time, patience, money, wisdom, to implement it? Judge Mann had been aware of no impulse in himself to punish, only of a desire to lessen disorder and try for the long view. And then Callista Blake. But balancing crime of punishment. Well, there it was, simply his own unexpected rephrasing of the issue that had startled him. Apart from that, if that was significant, this self-castigation probably served no purpose. Fashionable, but without merit, to wail that we are all guilty. So we are, in a sense, and, unless one intends to do something about it, so what? Breast-beating is as solitary as any other form of masturbation. The modern spirit, he thought, for a long time before Hiroshima, had grown too fond of the wail, the masochistic acceptance of futility that ended in a downright enjoyment of it, a perversion as sterile as the antics of the louse-eaten monks of the Thebaid. Admit that two years ago he might not have been completely honest with himself all right what mattered now was that a slow broadening of reform might look very fine in the armchair perspective of a history book but was no use at all to callista blake nineteen years old capital punishment was on the way out taking her along with it therefore in the very present specific instance what to do wandering to the other side of the room fingering the stacks of sheet music and the bound volumes, Judge Mann reflected that a judgeship is a very damned comfortable thing, to the nerves of pocketbook and of vanity, until a moment of self-appraisal brings you the image of a bewildered monkey in a black gown. An image caught as though in multiple mirrors. No good turning your head aside. A mirror in every wall, and the monkey poor puzzled well-meaning bastard in every mirror he did not want now the fury or grief or laughter of beethoven not now the lofty tenderness or robust passion of johann brahms he took down his one volume edition of the well-tempered clavichord and glanced at a memory-stirring litter of pencil marks made long ago in the curly script of his teacher michael brooks 
Mr. Brooks had died before the war, very old and partly blind. He might live another hundred years in these marks, far longer in the spreading influence of his fifty years of teaching, the impetus he gave to other lives continuing beyond any knowledge or measuring. Very good, Terence. More slow trill practice absolutely essential. Andante does not mean adagio. In this prelude, schmaltz is possible, but I do not like it. Excellent, but you could do better. Bring out the inner voices. Mr. Brooks grew vivid in memory, speaking with difficulty and panting breath because of age and the burden of fat that seemed, till you learned better, as though it might block his pudgy improbable hands away from the keyboard entirely. He had been seventy when Terence, at age eight, began lessons. He went on teaching twelve years thereafter. Terence remembered the gray eyes, tiny appearing, sometimes inflamed, in folds of drooping lids and fat, the completely hairless skull rising to a peak, the wondrously ugly features that, after the first impact of astonishment, left the word ugly without meaning. "'You think the fugues are dry, Terence? Bring out the inner voices. See, Terence, all the composers have something for you. But when you are unhappy—blinking, sighing, coughing. And Terence recalled a child's botheration dread of giggles at an old man's prolonged throat clearing guttural noises conversational spray habit of patting forlornly at the air when a needed word was gone from him or when you have discovered that happiness is only a sometime thing at best not too important then try bach terence try bach because he will let you enter a place where you become bigger than sadness or happiness, and bring out the inner voices. He set the old book on the piano. Hands and brain were tired, the hour late, though the neighboring apartment dwellers were tolerant, and often kept their mechanical music perking until after midnight. For a while he was in that place. Well, Mr. Brooks? container and thing contained. Aren't we always bigger than what stirs within us? All the same, it was a good way to talk to a child. But the very facility of his hands betrayed him, leaving his mind too free. Good, at first, to continue private thought while Bach was speaking, but then only another troublesome dividing of the self. Terence's father, not a patient man, would have said at this point, or sooner, "'God's sake, Terry, make up your mind!' He would have said that before 1928. In that year, father changed. And maybe the gray and harassed man could have entertained doubts earlier in his life on such an issue as capital punishment. He didn't have a closed or ungenerous mind. He couldn't afford to, a small-town doctor with two skittish growing boys, and a wife who came to believe herself in deeply otherworldly communication with Mary, Queen of Scots. 
but many of father's opinions were formed when he was a young man in the era of teddy roosevelt and he didn't always remember to speak softly unlike his older brother uncle norden who must have early learned the advantages of speaking softly at great length anyhow uncle nord built up that accomplishment into a thundering good law practice father before 1928 would likely have said if you asked him that criminals so hardened as to commit murder oh put him out for the good of society human failures the unfit odd word much loved by the 19th century used apparently in a sort of gentleman's agreement that no one was going to ask unfit for what father would not have spoken so out of vindictiveness or lack of human feeling just the impatient judgment of a busy man with troubles of his own who accepted a number of antique notions because he grew up with them that few hardened criminals ever commit murder that most murderers have acted on a blinding impulse unlikely to recur such facts would have been outside his mental territory and unacceptable knowledge of what father would have said was for terence a bloodstream thing no longer traceable to any remembered words like most people including doctors dr carl mann had never witnessed an execution nor known anyone well who wound up in jail gentlemen don't after eleanor mann's final breakdown and commitment father no longer announced his views with much positiveness in that year nineteen twenty eight the bottom fell out dr mann couldn't even get positive about al smith in spite of a long-standing rage at the imbecilities of prohibition when not meeting the heavy demands of a country medical practice he was beating out heart and brain in a private crucifixion asking himself the wrong questions what could i have done differently where did i fail her as though a clarification of his own past might even then help to restore eleanor's mind that had never really tolerated the difficulties of living before it made permanent retreat into the smoke of paranoid fantasy. Terence's hands fell away from the piano, leaving the third fugue unfinished. How had he arrived at contemplation of that time-eroded grief? The subject was Callista Blake, not Eleanor Mann, who still lived, if you could call it that, in the curiously ordered world of yellow brick and manicured lawns that was Claiborne Hospital. She was seventy-eight this year, clouded by senility along with the psychosis. She recognized Terence on his visits, listening, or seeming to, usually with patiently closed eyes, as he toiled to create a conversation. Jack, successful in his own psychiatric practice, had more difficulty when he drove or flew from Boston to see her. Thirty-one years ago the cobwebs of her delusions had wrapped themselves inextricably around the life of the elder son, four years older than Terence, and at that time in his junior year at Harvard. Her voices, many others along with that of Mary Queen of Scots, 
had informed her that Jack was increasingly involved with gangsters and women of ill fame. The college authorities, and, for some never-explained reason, Mayor Jimmy Walker, were all in it together. When she was on the point of going up to Cambridge to deal with all that, Dr. Carl Mann, goaded at last into understanding, said no. She flung an inkwell in his face and gouged it with a pair of scissors. Though he was fairly muscular, and she was not, it required the help of his office nurse to restrain her. Most of that was over, the dust settling, when Terence, sixteen years old, got home from school. Now in her antiquity the sorrows, fantasies, and angers of the past were still preserved for her by the specialized, selective memory of the schizophrenic. Flies in Amber A year ago, Terence and Jack visiting her together, she told Terence that she could easily have forgiven poor Jack if he had lived. Then it came out, in a natural, pleasantly quiet conversation, that the slim, gray-haired man sitting over there was nothing but a body, stolen for no good purpose by the unclean spirit of Henry the Eighth. Later, at the airport, Jack remarked, "'Psychiatrically speaking, it may be a poor symptom, but don't mind it, Terry. I'll make out all right as hellfire Harry Tudor. Less of a strain than some of my other roles.' "'Beyond psychiatry, isn't it?' "'If you mean beyond effective therapy, yes, boy.' Boy, from Jack, was acceptable, always had been. "'It was beyond existing therapy thirty years ago.' Jack also counted years. "'We just don't know the score on paranoid schizophrenia. We know approximately what to expect, which is something, maybe.' Mental disease could be the last holdout among medical enigmas, Terry. We may be sweating out cases like mothers when there's a pill or a shot for cancer. It's the, oh, the inaccessibility of mental action. Jack had been tired, but not remote. Fatigue never dulled a shining quality of his alertness. Wait till you get some big case in court with a borderline paranoid as a star performer. That conversation of a year ago had been hampered, Jack waiting on the start of his plane flight back to Boston. No leisure, bustling strangers, time pressure, uproar of loudspeakers and warming engines. Was it relevant now? Callista Blake, a borderline paranoid? Rather urgently and emphatically, Judge Mann thought, No, she's not. Psychiatry more or less stood in the wings in People versus Blake. The state's man called her legally sane. If he hadn't, the state would have had no trouble shopping around for someone who did. Warner had had the girl examined by a Dr. Coburn, who might or might not testify. So far, Warner had dropped no hint suggesting an insanity defense. Inaccessibility of mental action, was that relevant? Dominantly. For wasn't that the very essence of the principle of reasonable doubt? 
and was there any rational formula anywhere in the law except the principle of reasonable doubt at all likely to save callista blake must see jack again soon he looked out in the city's darkness past a false curtain of window glass reflection a city of magic under a lens of illusion as long ago in the creaky white pillared house in emmetville where he grew up he used to look out from the bedroom he shared with jack at images that would not live by day especially on rainy nights the vacant lot on the other side of maple street became for the boy transfigured a garden of living shadows sometimes under the lash of wet wind even the sea as conrad and melville had given the sea to him in winter leaves fallen one could look past the few naked trees at the back of the lot to a gleam of water a mile away walton pond reflecting the motion and glitter of the railroad yard on its far side every night at nine twenty five the ghostly passage of a fourteen-car express to terence and jack the express one of the great trains that couldn't be imagined as stopping at emmetville you did not hear its thunder only saw the silent gliding of windows then thirty seconds after the vanishing came the desolate splendor of the whistle crying for a grade crossing the night imperfect until that music had fulfilled its mission and died see him again and bring out the inner voices the once vacant lot was now occupied in front by a filling station in the rear by a drive-in theatre as a passion pit that probably served on a mass production basis the same purpose once served by the vacant lot where he and jack occasionally discovered and snickered at the discarded rubber stained handkerchiefs and other detritus of hasty lechery as for the gracious white house where terence had once known every spot every squeaky board and dim hideaway in closets and under the eaves it now belonged to someone who had made it a tourist home with noxious plastic animals on the front lawn and called it tumble in so perish treasures of the spirit to be born elsewhere in other guise perhaps and he remembered the evening after his mother's commitment was made definite jack had been home for several days his presence helpful in the confusion the curious desolation like and not like a death jack would be returning to college in the morning terence had gone to bed jack was about to lazily delaying how honest shall we get terry are you inside of you relieved i am half undressed jack stood over terence's bed smoking in ever observant kindness i guess i am bad the last few months each day a bit stickier the moods no no way of talking to her every remark turned upside down like trying to see a room in a twisty mirror jack what kid does it mean we shouldn't marry no his brother's quiet hand waved away smoke from between them 
and the question too it's probably not hereditary anyway your children get half the endowment from their mother marry a mattress type terry brains optional no come to think you couldn't get along with a cloth head make it a mattress type with gray cells they do exist might have to hunt around a little testing mattresses jack sat down and spread his left hand light and warm on terence's chest frowning off at the window saying to it got a kid brother with social conscience yet it was at sixteen the first time terence had encountered the full revelation of love for another seeing that other as a complete human being all the more beloved for his separateness he said only not hereditary how can you be sure jack nobody's sure just the best educated guess i saw this coming more than a year ago had to study into the thing for my own sake terry books talk with one of the psycho faculty up there who seems to be able to tell his ass from a barrel of flour useful accomplishment i had to answer that question you asked and others like for instance asking a character i saw in the mirror how about you jack you going that way too one of these days studying it seemed to be the only method of meeting it head-on that why you switched to pre-med courses this year partly would have anyhow i think mother's brains began to get hurt and kicked around when she was small i think but not by the genes wish we'd known grandpa and grandma kane they seem to have been a lovely pair of pious frauds probably started raping her wits as soon as she could talk uh-huh terry i've got every intention of marrying and plowing a few seeds into that interesting furrow you will too my guess terence had felt then a hunger to talk body and blow the lid off in words wondered also if he would cry because of the secret inner fire that held no name in the language happiness was not the name and the new discovered love for his brother was only a part of it an opening of a door got something all lined up nope playing the field a pre-marriage elective technical studies how to tease down the most drawers with the least squawk he said that with no leer but a mild pagan amusement already far removed from the idiom of emmetville as it turned out jack went on playing the field quite a while not marrying till he was thirty-nine in his terms that probably made sense too you haven't tried it yet terry the sixteen-year-old terence flushed unhappily and shook his head on the pillow wishing there had been a hundred experiences suppressing an impulse to invent a few but jack wasn't dismissing him back to childhood jack said i hear tell and ancient memories within this senile bosom do confirm that in every well-conducted high school there is at least one how shall i put it with utmost delicacy 
at least one kitty with an available pussy or two or three he grinned and took his hand away relax boy there's no rush as he finished undressing with his unfussy neatness he asked remember cassie ferguson in my class cassie black hair skinny lot of eyebrow well well did the quiet you be damn manner fool you the ones who put out for the joy of it don't make much noise about it cassie was very very good for me more tricks than a monkey on a greased flagpole jack turned out the light and sat on his own bed for a final cigarette he said softly recalling childhood we missed the express did she blow she blew she blew good night terence man he turned from the window from the lights of winchester he ran the blunted tip of a thin finger along the edge of the piano's raised leaf a motion of affection another friend a friend not exactly left behind when he went to law school but it seemed to judge man that his present way of existence compared to that of say michael brooks was not very successful important or useful to others a majority of his countrymen would assess it differently of course mr brooks never a concert performer even when young poor health no presence no glamour why the old boy probably did well to make three thousand a year if that obviously the bitch goddess wouldn't have looked twice he wondered not long why the thought of another face familiar and vigorously detested should have crowded away the cherished ugly features of mr brooks this face was a handsomely carved block of chilly pink meat under white hair high falcon nose flexible lips that squeezed a manifest delight out of elaborately precise diction words did not simply pass through the lips of judge cleaver they were escorted out by a pair of busy pale red snakes the only organs of the man's face that ever knew emotion the lips writhed twisted enjoyed were sickly passionate that you be taken hence to the place from which you came and thence at the appointed time to the place of execution where but give the dreary old cannibal credit the apparatus under that raptorial beak would squirm with the same enthusiasm when it was ordered a poached egg the pallid blue eyes of this pillar of society were astonishingly dull cleaver was an earnest prohibitionist no drink no smoking no cussing likely hadn't been laid in thirty years yet you could observe similar eyes whenever the drunk tank yielded its human load to the courts and hospitals to learn of an original thought behind those soggy irises would be nearly as incredible as to learn of a generous one. Cleaver had been a judge since the days of the political machine preceding Timmy Flax into his present miasmic twilight of senility. Automatically, in a new trial, if Terence Mann were for any reason disqualified, 
he would sit in judgment on the life of Callista Blake. Thanks, Judge, thanks to your obscene simulacrum for reminding me of several things I must not do. Terence Mann flexed his hands to relieve a tension. Then he played the third fugue, to completion this time, and well enough. Mr. Brooks would have rubbed his fleshy nose and said, Mmm! Then he was compulsively searching through a pile of long, unused material until he unearthed the beginner's book, the first grade instruction prescribed by Michael Brooks. He remembered insisting, eight years old, that he must pick out the book personally, so off to Sim's music store in Winchester with the tickled, slightly bumbling doctor, who knew everybody and took occasion to introduce him to the lantern-jaw and slow-motion smile of Herbert Q. Sims, and embarrassed the toe-twisting bejesus out of the boy with some well-meant cockadoodle about latest threat to Joseph Hoffman, then four blocks down Court Street to—Terence hadn't quite believed it—Judson's piano store. This same piano, now standing here thirty-nine years later, rather old as such things go, but good as new. The doctor's way, taking such a plunge out of nothing but faith in a small boy's dream. Probably that year he'd been just barely able to afford it. He should have lived another forty. But Dr. Carl Mann, in the early winter of 1930, not drunk, for he never was, a blue ugliness of ink still visible in the long seam of scar tissue across his face, his financial affairs well in order, in fact very little hurt by the smash of 1929, for country people still got sick and still paid for it as well as they could, and the night cloudy, yes, but no rain or ice on the roads, happened somehow to drive his car into the concrete abutment of the railroad overpass at Pritchett. His only unkindness, the matter of uncertainty. It could easily have been a syncope, as the coroner decided, or a mechanical failure of the car concealed by the total smash. Or the doctor might have been uncertain himself, up to the last blind instant of no return. Here, anyway, was the instruction book, pages gone brown at the rims, and with the script of Michael Brooks. Eyes on the notes. Get rid of that shoulder-arm tension. Judge Mann carried it to the armchair, with a go-to-bed glass of brandy. Not all those careful fingerings had been written in by Mr. Brooks. The last half of the manual, he had forgotten, had quite a few figures in an eight- or nine-year-old hand, correct too, placed there after he had got by the first few hurdles with his enthusiasm still afire. The book would be more or less out of date, Judge Mann reflected. Modern pedagogy had new notions, some good, some not. He wondered if he was examining this relic from a middle-aged need to get nearer somehow in time to the mind of Callista Blake. Partly, maybe. Certainly the dignified black notes before his eyes, the passages of the third fugue remembered, the express, the first discovery of Huck Finn, Moby Dick, Beethoven Opus 57, 
the embrace of a filipino girl whose body was a little golden candle flame certainly none of all that had the effect of shutting away callista blake she was very present which is the clerk but more than anything else here at the frayed tired lonely end of the evening he was wondering practically too and with the special fascination of such practical problems how he would go about helping a child beginner to free the fourth finger strengthen the fifth accomplish the small immense passage from the five-finger cage to the wide-open country of the octave and he found that he meant just that how he would do it he terence mann age forty-seven not merely judge of the court of general sessions in and for the county of winchester but also a pianist of more than decent competence if in the habit of speaking aloud in loneliness he supposed he could have said reasonably to the imagined presence of callista beyond the bright amber of the brandy not now not while your life is proposed for burning callista but afterward maybe afterward possibly a letter to the new essex bar association explaining how for me the law has been an interlude of a quarter century and interesting but now i would rather attempt something that i find more important which would annoy the holy hell out of them callista but all the same i may write it a curious thought which he took to bed sleeping quite soon to encounter the inner voices of sleep with moments of tranquillity End of Part 4, Section 2 Recording by Roger Moline